Jack Stein, Spike O'Neill, Bruce Springsteen, Spike O'Neill, longtime anti fan of Bruce Springsteen. Dude! <laughs> Come on, now I'm, I'm, I need to apologize to the city of Seattle right now for the next three hours. Um, if you're I, was, going. I was 15 the first time I saw Bruce in 78. Wow. I haven't wow. missed, I haven't missed a, any tour. Solo uh, with the band that time forgot that when he left the East Street and brought the Californians in, I saw yeah. those tours as well. I've seen him in six states. I've seen him four times in New Jersey. I saw the rising tour in, on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, standing next to four of the biggest New York firefighters. I'm about to tear up. These four guys yeah. wept openly wow. for four hours. These four New York, wow. I mean, the biggest New York firefighters you ever saw. And after the rising tour, after 9-11, Bruce played Atlantic City. And that stood. my brother and I stood next to these four New York firefighters. And it was a life-changing experience. So you folks that hate Bruce and never got it, I'm sorry. <laughs> See you tomorrow. <laughs> I didn't realize that this is such a huge part of your life. I thought we were going to talk about Dilbert. And sex offenders. <laughs> oh well, we, see now that's that's what we're supposed to do, Andrew. You can, yes, you can yeah. if you, if, Andrew, if you don't bring the music down, I will think about nothing else <laughs> for the next three hours. That's so we can blame Andrew. Um, now we should talk about the news that affects our lives on a daily basis, and we'll get yeah. to this story about uh, the sex offenders and where, what place do they have in our community? How do we find that place in our community? And Kate Stone's going to join us. She's done some incredible reporting on this story and how it affects every one of us. But let's start with the biggest news in America. Dilbert. The biggest news, yeah, the biggest news in America, Spike, is that uh, Scott Adams, the, the creator of Dilbert, has been dropped by almost every major publication in America after his comments that he made on his YouTube channel. Should I? Should we give people a, like a content warning on this? Because it's um, really bad. It's really yeah, bad. Yeah, we sh- we should definitely give them a content warning. But it, it bears playing because I don't know that we could do justice to the level of. Oh, what's what's the right word that would use people with bigotry? Tone, tone, well, no, racism. To, well, those are those are the table chair, but I mean tone deaf. Yes, to, very to much what so. to where yeah. we are in in our history, where we are as a nation. It, it, but it's a cautionary tale. I mean, we we can touch on it quickly and move on. But that's you. We could chew on this story and how dangerous this point of view is, and how pervasively yeah. dangerous this point of view is. We could do that for three hours. So he made comments on his YouTube channel that are akin to something that maybe Bull Connor might say, or, you know, maybe someone of that kind kind of a Richard Spencer-esque neo-Nazi type ethno-centrist ideology. Uh, have we got that audio, Psycho Matt? Can we play we, that for the we people? We do. Here we go. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Where, wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. Right? This can't be fixed. You just have to escape. So that's what I did. I went to a neighborhood where, you know, I have a very low black population. Because we, we should, well, that's, that's enough. That, I, I, yeah. we, we ha- it yeah. went on for the longest, so, a painfully long like, amount of time. Yeah, like 13 minutes yeah. on his YouTube channel. And so what he's responding to is that there was a report that was uh, put out there where uh, it was, uh, do you agree or disagree with the statement that it's okay to be white? And the report found that 72% of the respondents agreed, including 53% of black people, but then 26% of black respondents disagreed, right? And the sample size on this is a couple thousand people, right? So you're going to be able to find a couple hundred racists out there. It's not that hard. So Scott Adams takes this poll and he broadens it out to everybody, to the United States as a whole. And so he says that a quarter of a black, black Americans 
do not think it's okay to be white, which is unbelievable. I, I hate to be insensitive to the guy, but it's an unbelievably stupid way to to draw data, right? And right. to draw conjecture out of data. So then he decides to go on his YouTube channel and basically commit career suicide by taking what should thoughts that should be no, you, you don't get to share those with people and then put them out there. And then at the very end of this, because I, I watched a, a, a decent amount of it, at the very end, he says, my career is over and I'm going to get canceled for this. So on and so well, forth. Well, now so, fly, the, fly the cancel flag high and proud because here's, right, what, here's what's yeah. coming. You know, the, America gets canceled for free speech. Where's free speech? Canceled for his point of view. You know, I can't wait for that crowd to step in well, behind the parade. A, that's already happened. That's yeah. already oh, yeah. happened. Spike. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the crazy thing about it is I hear the counter argument to this is where people say, well, the New York Times, the New York Times runs articles about uh, how, you know, white people are, are, are dangerous, so on and so forth all of the time. Uh, this is just uh, equal speech, if you will. But if it's bad, if the New York Times does it, if they run racist articles or, or articles that could perceive be perceived as being racist, if we all agree that that's bad and we don't like it then why would we allow Scott Adams to do the, the opposite of that, right? Why would we allow Scott Adams to do the same thing, but as it pertains to black people? If you don't like it when the New York Times does it, it being just openly racist, you shouldn't like it when Scott Adams does it. And so I don't understand how people do this mental gymnastics where they say, well, this is cancel culture and this is blah, 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 when all these uh, newspapers are making editorial decisions. They're just saying we don't want to proliferate this information. We get to determine what we have and, and don't have in our newspapers, and we don't like right. – we don't want to be affiliated with Scott Adams. That is the definition of the freedom of association, which is a, a hard-fought conservative principle that I personally think is great. If you want to drop somebody, you drop them, and so that's what they did. I, I love how people say freedom of speech, but it's really not it, – for me, it's one simple concept. Freedom of speech is not freedom from consequence. You're free to Based. say whatever you want. Absolutely. And by all yeah. means, Scott Adams, run that flag up the flagpole, you know, see what salutes. <laughs> and then when, when the consequences yeah. of your decisions reap, come home and, and you reap, you reap a whole a whirlwind of consequence. Good yeah. luck with your, good luck with your future endeavors. I like, that's a good way to end this one, Spike. Good luck to you, Scott Adams. And hey whatever, man, fly, fly, know. live in your all white neighborhood, put your, put your gate up, have a blast. You've made enough yeah, money. Yeah, you don't, you don't mean, have to enter the workforce. You can probably have groceries delivered to your home, so I have to see you in my grocery store. Good on you. <laughs> I'm happy he's been so successful. And, you know, maybe maybe isolate yourself a little bit more. You know, maybe move out. Go out into the woods. You know what I mean? Go yeah, buy a, it's, but, a, a you know, it's dangerous. compound out in the woods. It's so, mm. it's so dangerous and so easy to just put this all on Scott Adams. And the problem is yes. he didn't have yeah. these thoughts. He didn't generate, maybe he did some of it, but he didn't generate this point of view. He's echoing this point of view that is so pervasive and so platformed across so many places. Yeah. I, 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 I think, think, I mean, I don't go yeah. down these Chan, 8, Tran, whatever their rabbit holes. I don't go eight there. 8 Chan, yeah, I do. QAnon. I don't, <laughs> I, well, you know, there's an art of war mentality to know what the other side is thinking and what the other side exactly. is doing. It's, it's not a bad way to live your life to be at least informed and aware what the well, other side of the table looks like, but man. I'll tell you I'll tell you how this happens. Scott Adams came out 2016 very pro Trump and he caught a lot of flack for that. And so I think Me what too. happens <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and so I think what has happened to a lot of MAGA people over time is they become so disaffected from not not not, not all MAGA people but but prominent MAGA people is that they become targets of the left and they get pushed further and further to the right. 
and they begin going towards people who agree with them and they get assimilated into the, f the fringes of political ideology. And then this, which is commonplace in those, fr the, those fringe yeah. spaces, that's how they start thinking and, it, and talking and, and it doesn't speak for the majority of Ameri conservative Americans in any way, no, shape or form. No. It does not. No. We're aware of that. Yeah. You know, uh, and I apologize for giving that so much time. But it is such an important. <laughs> seriously, it is such it a. Is. It is such it a is. dangerous and sad, heartbreaking story of a talented guy, who's just you know to quote Marjorie Taylor Greene, I got caught up in some internet stuff. It happens to a lot of us. Let's move on to a different topic. Yeah. So uh, lo go ahead. Locally, uh, you want to take this one, Spike? Why sexually violent predators are being housed in local communities? Well, I could speak to this. I've done a lot of reading on this, but I would rather bring you the source of the information. Kate Stone of the Cairo Newsroom. Oh, um, that's right. You. Yes. And I feel first off, I want to say I'm very glad to hear you doing the report on the Sounders' first win. Yes. Because whenever I see you working your your tail off in the other in the newsroom, you're looking at sexual predators. You're looking <laughs> at you got you get just the darkest side of humanity stories on your desk. Everyone's favorite topics. Yeah. So uh, so what's when when a person convicted of sex crimes uh, is served their time in jail or uh, now McNeil Island, which is a local, you know, historical local used to be a prison, but now it's a transitional place to keep sexual predators. Yes. Um, when they are now done with with McNeil Island and believe me, they put them on island for a very good reason. You will die trying to swim away. It's that's how seriously they take not just the the incarceration of sexual predators in our community. But the transitional housing of sexual predators in our community. But there comes a time when people have served their time and have earned the right to reenter our society. That's part of our U.S. Constitution. But yes. where, where do we put them? In, and the decision to have them in, in here and not here, it can be a difficult one. Kate, please it, take over. It's a tough. It's a tough subject. I, obviously, there's been a lot of attention on it, and we've covered it quite a bit in uh, on our on our air on Cairo Radio and and online. Uh, if you're interested in more information, my Northwest has quite a bit. I, I did a three part series on it, but essentially, as you said, Spike, it's a constitutional right for people who have served their prison time to eventually be reintegrated back into the community. Washington state law in 1990, they said, okay, well, we don't want them going straight from prison back into our streets. So we're going to put them in this what's called civil commitment and treat them, at, give them treatment for sex offenses and hopefully get them to a point where they're not quite as dangerous. And that's the point of McNeil Island. However, in order for that to be legal under the Constitution, there has to be a pathway back eventually to them living free. And that's where the complications have arisen. The the interesting thing is the attention is being so focused on this right now, these situations in Tenino and Enumclaw. This has been happening since 1990. I mean, this has been happening the whole time. The difference is that there was a law passed in 2021 that did a couple of seemingly unimportant but actually extremely impactful things. One of them is that it said each county must have an equal number of housing options for the sex offenders. So they're all, not all being put in Spokane or Pierce County or something like that. Right. The second thing is that it established the 500-foot rule. And it's really important. And it seems like a good idea, right? 500 feet. There has to be a 500-foot radius from any less restrictive housing alternative where a violent sex offender lives. 500-foot radius from any school or child care facility. I mean, that yeah, makes that, sense. That does seem like people with a proclivity and a problem – with the attraction to minors, 
shouldn't be placed anywhere near within 500 feet. seems like a small radius, but you take what you can get when you negotiate laws that they can't be within these this yeah, restriction yeah. of these facilities. Here's what I found to be the problem with this rule through my research, through my interviews with the state officials is a anyone who owns a home or a building in that 500 foot radius or a, a, where a potential LRA could be, they could apply for a child care license and essentially block an LRA from being established in that wow. neighborhood. Right. Is that the golden ticket or what? Yeah. So that that's the first thing. And the second thing is that when you look at urban areas like Seattle, how are you going to find a place that has a 500-foot radius from any school or child care facility? You are essentially forcing the LRAs, those housing options for less the violent sex ops. offenders. Right, less restrictive less, alternative. Less restrictive alternative right, housing LRAs. options for violent sex offenders. You're essentially forcing them into rural areas like Tenino, like Enumclaw. And the community has said, we are concerned. We don't have the resources. We're worried law enforcement won't respond to us. We're really far out. These are probably valid concerns. However, based on the state law, there's really not a lot of options because we can't put them in Seattle. And isn't it that um, counties have to have a proportionate responsibility in housing these these offenders? I mean, if there Correct. are, say, I mean, Neil Allen releases 11 offenders, three from Pierce County, four from Snohomish County, four from King. That's how they have to be distributed. Correct. Okay. Well, so, there so has e- to be that number of housing options, options in each county. In, in those counties. Okay, right. Yes. Because that way the county who produced this criminal has responsibility to reintegrate them into society. Right. But you're also thinking about how much does rent or a mortgage cost in King County versus Thurston County? I mean, you think mm. about it, the, the options are so limited. I mean, the law may be well-intentioned, but it is pigeonholing the options yeah. so, that, so that these homeowners who want to create these LRAs, because to be clear, the state pays thousands of dollars per sex offender to house these sex offenders. Per month. Per month. Yeah. So it's like $7,000 for the one in Enumclaw. Per, per, per offender per month. It's it's a scale, yeah, so it's yeah. not seven thousand per, but okay, gotcha. it starts at seven thousand. And so, the community is saying these people are in unsecured houses. This is a problem. There's there's not enough security. There's not enough fencing. But I mean, by state law, the the state really their hands are tied because there's so many restrictions in place about where they can put these things. I mean, what are they supposed to do? How much is how much? How much of this, Kate Stone, is is nimbyism? Because I can understand somebody not wanting this anywhere near their neighborhood and, and going to great lengths to not have, you know, these kinds of facilities anywhere in their town or in their community. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can understand somebody applying for a child care license just to, to mess sure, with Sure, sure. I would. Is it 95% or 100% nimbyism in your mind? That's tough. To, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to say. I can't. I have in all of my interviews, I've not been able to find anyone who is excited about the prospect of having a violent sex offender living in their right. neighborhood yeah. uh, or is open to that idea. But at the end of the day, I think your listeners and a lot of the people involved in this issue understand that the constitutional right exists and that has to be respected. Well, one one issue I've heard you bring up before on other shows that you've been featuring on right. across the Cairo News Radio dial um, is that the the people who have these homes, yes. these LRAs, there aren't enough restrictions on how they do business. There aren't any kind of requirements for how they monitor the 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 
inmates, I don't even call them inmates anymore, the offenders. Residents. The residents. The residents. Can't even call them offenders. The residents because they've earned that by serving time. I get it. But if you're going to make, you know, seven grand on a sliding scale per and you've got five people in your house, if you're making anywhere from 15 to 35 or more, $1,000 a month to house these these uh, residents, shouldn't you then be required to have adequate security, adequate monitoring, adequate training from a psychological perspective on making sure these folks aren't slipping back into old ways, being able to recognize patterns of, of offenders? You, you bring up an interesting point, and there have been bills that have failed in the past, including one. So the 2021 bill was sponsored uh, by Senator Christine Rolfes of North Kitsap. Uh, she sponsored a 2020 bill that would have placed restrictions on what kind of residence settings would qualify as LRAs. And there's also been talk about getting licensing or training or something for the people running this or at least having a set of standards like cameras or fencing or armed security, things like that. None of that exists right now in the state law. The only real restriction is the house or the residence must be up to code, which is actually how they're stalling it in Tenino right now because the house has some coding issues and 500 foot radius. So there's a lot of there's a lot of holes I mean, if you're, if you're going to be paid tens of thousands of dollars a month by the state to house these residents, these former offenders, then I, it seems pretty reasonable to hope for and expect some security, some training to make sure that this transition that you're trying to provide for former offenders back into society, their constitutional rights shouldn't be a safety, infra, you know, impact on the, on the rest of the community. And I can say that is the main concern for the communities is safety and what happens in the in in case of someone walking out of that house and across the street kate stone thank you so much for this excellent reporting you can find thank this you. over at my northwest by the way the there's a three-part my northwest series on sex offender housing kate stone cairo radio zone appreciate you so very much there's a lot of contentious issues out there spike o'neill there's a lot of uh you know democrat republican trans people gay marriage, abortion, a lot of heated issues out there that people could talk about. But one that is close to my heart, maybe the closest to my heart, my heart, is free school lunches. Now, before everybody says, Jack Stein, you're a communist and you're a socialist and go back to Russia, uh, the reason that I care about this <laughs> so much is that if, there are so many kids out there that if you look at any, any data that's from the American Academy of Pediatrics, anywhere out there, kids who don't have the correct amount of calories in their body in school function poorly they do not well if they don't have food in their in their tummy it makes sense right their their blood sugar drops they can't focus they get tired so on and so forth so in in terms of societal interest i as john q taxpayer have no problem with states providing uh, free lunches for children however Free school lunch is off the table in the state of Washington, but Washington may expand access. So despite the fact that it didn't pass through the legislature, there are still schools out there that are trying to provide free school lunches for the children. Correct, Spike O'Neill? That's correct. They tried to put a bill this year that would give uh, universal free lunches for the state of Washington. It didn't get out of initial committee as all legislative has to do to move, move down the track. Like Matt Markovich uh, kind of likened it to the NCAA bracket. Yes, you know, we yeah. got we got through the first round. We're into the second round. Universal school lunches didn't make it. There's a scaled back bill 
that would allow school lunches to be provided for any school that has, I think, 30% student uh, who qualify for free or reduced lunches or more. That school, given the high percentage of already people involved, would get universal free lunches. Uh, but to your point about kids and how we should value them, if you want to invest in infrastructure in this country, what is yes. more infrastructure than the people who will be picking our retirement homes? I, hate to, <laughs> I, I frame it that way because it really it drives it right into people's living rooms. Yeah. Okay, you yeah. know, treat your kids well. They will be picking your retirement homes. But you know, kids who don't have enough to eat don't learn adequately. They, they can't learn. You're right. Their brains can't focus. They, there's so many factors. Right. But, and there's so many kids. I heard G and Ursula this morning talking about this topic and G threw out some stats that just broke my heart about how many families qualify for, you know, assistance. But more importantly, how many families don't? How many families are just on the bubble? They make just enough to not qualify for any kind of uh, state or federal aid. Yet they still have the exact same bills everybody else does. And we get increases in, in food prices or fuel prices or rent prices. Then you can't afford to feed your family. So given, yeah. the, given every kid in school, one or even two, lunch and breakfast, every day, knowing these kids are going to get fed, is there any better way to spend our tax dollars? Yes, Mike, I was on uh, the conservative subreddit, which is where I go to read conservative news. And underneath the stories, people can comment. That's the way that it works on Reddit. And so in in 2022, California passed universal lunch for for kids in, in school. Okay. And that article popped up on conservative sub, the conservative subreddit. And I thought these guys are going to rip it to pieces. Obviously, these guys are not going to like it whatsoever. I scrolled through hundreds of comments of conservatives, true MAGA, you know, true, you know, yeah, I G- hear you. GOP conservatives. Yeah. And they were all saying, if it's for the kids, I'm all for it. I was dumbfounded. I was so surprised that hundreds of conservatives who, you know, any social program out there, they're so desperate to to tear it down. But in this instance, they because it's about children, they viewed it as a a nonpartisan issue. And I feel very much the same way. And I'm very much so in agreement with my conservative friends on Reddit when it comes to this program, because one, it comes from a state surplus. But two, this is just good for the, the future of, of, of the United States as a whole, right? We have children yeah. who are well-fed, and they can be educated, in the, and, and they get nutritious meals, and they can pay attention in school. The counter-argument to this, though, Spike, is that it fosters dependence on the state. That giving a kid, uh, that really? Giving, <laughs> that giving a kid. If that's the strongest counterargument they got, we're going to win eventually. Well, the, the, this is the uh, counterargument that you hear from many people out there who may be more fiscally conservative or socially conservative, well, and they will say that it it fosters dependence on the state because it shows the children that mom and dad can't provide for them, and so children will turn to the state instead of mom and dad. Now, I find this to be a a fairly ineffective argument in so many ways because it's like I I just don't see how if it's universal, meaning that the the rich kids get it and the poor kids get it, does that mean that everyone shall be dependent? You know what I mean? It, right. This kind it's, of blanket such, yeah. assumption is pretty ridiculous. You know, save a kid from drowning and he'll never learn to swim. <laughs> really? That's that's where you're going with this, people? I mean, that's that's right. I, I, it's got just as much logic. Give right. a kid a free lunch. You don't want free everything for the rest of his life. How about he's right. just not hungry and he can learn how to get a good job and support his family and contribute to the economy? You know, for me, the pushback I've heard on this is there are families who can afford to provide lunch. 
Why should the okay. state be paying for them? And that's that's a valid argument. That's probably, to me, the hardest argument to push back on. And and there should be, I think, a mechanism for families who can't afford to pay lunch to maybe kick in to help the system that every kid gets free lunch. But but I think that defeats the point. You you nailed it. If there's a universal where every kid is the same at school. You know that they don't have they don't yes. get they don't get yeah. a reduced lunch. You know the free lunch. Here, the, everybody else is getting lasagna today or pizza today or what stir fry today. Free lunch gets a bologna and cheese sandwich and a white milk. <laughs> and and if you think yeah. if yeah. you think more damage isn't done to kids in school by their peers than any other element of society, you've been out of school for too long. That's that's where the danger comes into the well being of children, the mental well being of children is how horrible kids can be to each other in schools. I mean, and I know because I was usually on the wrong end of that. I was usually the the, the, the jackass <laughs> being nasty, and not because kids were poor, but because they were frail and weak. And I was just trying to thin the herd. I watched a lot of National <laughs> Geographic. I was just trying to thin the herd. That's so Your bad, Honor, right? it's I know, I know, but I'm owning That's it. So I'm bad. owning my stupidity from my past. Now, but kids, kids should all step up and get the exact same thing from from the lunch lady, regardless of their ability to pay. Food shaming, you know. Um, economic shaming from kids, it can be brutal. There's enough kids don't like about each other. There's enough ways for kids to get on each other's, whether it's fashion or or hairstyles or the clique you're in or the hobbies or interests that you have. Right. You know, there's enough reasons for kids to be split apart and pick on the weaker links in schools these days while having food shaming based on economic opportunities to, or economic ability to pay. Well, let me give you another stat here. Says uh, nearly two dozen of the 700 new schools are in the Auburn School District, which started offering free meals to all students this year after it qualified under the school the state's eligibility law. About 61 percent of students in the district live in low income uh, live in a low income home. It's according to the district's data. So over 50 percent of those kids, according to the metrics, would not be able to afford lunch. Right. Right. Over 60 percent. And I, I, I understand people's trepidation around wanting to provide, quote unquote, free things to people. And we all know that it's not free. It costs money. And in, this, in the state of California, you know, I was doing research for this. It's about six hundred and fifty million dollars a year uh, in the state of Washington. It would be obviously significantly less than that. But the funding mechanism for it is state surplus money which I find to be even more fascinating. So that, that's no new taxes, right? That's no new. Right, <laughs> no that's from our, our rainy day funds, which we rainy have in Washington. Funds. Right. So, and I can think of no better use of funds as somebody who is constantly complaining about government wasting money than it actually going to people and children who live in the state, right? That, that Call me crazy, but I just happen to think if we're going to use money... <laughs> It yeah. should be going towards people who need it within the state. Well, I think so. the reason it didn't pass this legislative session, the, the universal free lunch, was there just wasn't a mechanism for payment. Uh, there, there's, we, right. they, they didn't know yet. how. And, and I kind of, okay, I respect the fiscal responsibility of folks saying, look, until we know how we're going to pay for it, let's find a scaled down version we know we can pay for, that we know where the money's coming from, no new taxes to pay for it, and let's look at this again in the future and find a way to, to, to fund this because I think everybody, like you said, California was, and even in the the, the, the conservative subreddit, yes, they they yeah. if it's for the kids, I'm in. Yeah, yeah I think exactly. I think we'll get there by Washington standards too. We'll take a really quick break when we get back. Uh, a Washington representative has a plan to remove something from ballots, and I have two minds about it. We'll take a really quick break. We'll mm. be right back after this. Welcome back. House Bill. 
1826, Spike O'Neill would eliminate party labels from Washington's ballots with the legislature weighing whether or not they want candidates to remain identified by a political party. I have two thoughts about this. I'm of two minds about this. Okay. The first one is that I despise the two-party system. I wish that we had more viable parties in the United States. I sincerely do. I, I rarely, if ever, vote GOP. I never vote Democrat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but uh, I think, well, the last person I voted for was Larry Elder when he was running in the fine state of California two years ago. So um, actually, you know what? Wait, who else did I vote for? It doesn't matter. But besides that, I would like to see more variety in the kind of candidates that we can, you know, that lift up. But at the same time, if you remove the person's, what is it, political affiliation from yeah. the ballot, are we not coddling people at that point in time? Are we not, like, don't people deserve to know that that person is a Republican, that person is a Democrat? Don't well, they des- just to know right off the bat, that's their their party affiliation? Well, you know, this is the... <laughs> It's a solution to the wrong problem. The problem that we have is that people are so entrenched in their points of view, mm-hmm. being told by, on a daily basis from one side of the media that everybody with an R behind their name hates this country, and the other <laughs> side is telling everybody with a D behind their name hates this country, Yeah, right? Um, it, it, and I, I think that the way we, way we politic, the way we campaign is broken. You know, we, we kind of touched on this for just a second last week about a two-year primary cycle, which is what we're in. We really yes, are in a yeah. two-year primary cycle, and it's it's ridiculous. It's redundant. It's like the news news channels that need to fill twenty-four hours with forty minutes of news and twenty-three hours and twenty minutes of BS. We get the same thing from campaigning. I feel, I really do, and I love some of the parts of this. I'm of two minds of this as well. I think we need to, you know, people should be identified with what party they're going to vote with. Because that's what's going to happen. They're going to vote with their party in lockstep in most cases. They vote in lockstep with their party. Yeah. And it's yeah. nice to know where you stand on a political point or a particular issue. I'd like to know where you stand on this, on school lunches, on uh, the Second Amendment, on yeah. whatever it might be. But you're going to inevitably vote in lockstep with your party. That's how you get the party funds to run because we're constantly campaigning. You know, it, it's tough. I like, to, I like reading into this rule. And it was Representative Skylar Root, I believe, who, who proposed this, yes. was speaking with Jason Rance. And this is one of the days, mark your calendar, Seattle, Spike O'Neill is in total agreement with Jason Rance. It happens <laughs> once every moon, once every lunar cycle. And you never yeah. know where we're going to come into agreement, but we are in agreement here. You know, there are times when the Republicans and the Democrats do not even get to caucus together to debate issues. They're yeah. not allowed to. They have separate but equal facilities at the state capitol. Where the Republican Party meets in caucuses on this side of the building, Democrats meet in caucuses on that side of the building. That's not unheard of. That's not that's not uncommon in most politics. But it is a roadblock to getting things done, to talking about issues, to finding compromise, to being statesmen. Yeah. Do you think do you think that there are people out there that they get their ballot and they, they get their pen and they look at the ballot and they go R and then they go D and then oh this is the D side and then they just, they just straight mark down it. the ticket <laughs> yeah, yes of course, the, yeah. <laughs> of course there are of course there are i yeah. i have yeah. i i have a family member who votes straight ticket every it's, time it, every time and it, and i it's not the D side yeah <laughs> I'm, you know and i I, I like to think that I can be open-minded enough, but I would probably tend, since I know that they're going to vote in lockstep with our party, their party, yeah, yeah. that I tend to fall into the same bad habit of voting for 
that party's that party's point of view, their platform initiatives. That's what we do, man. It'd be nice if we all ran as independents, an open yes. primary where nobody yep. had any party affiliation and then caucus with the point of view you feel best represents the well-being of your constituency or even your own personal beliefs and priorities. But then again, I live in a cotton candy unicorn world. I know none of these things are going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's almost I'm smart like- enough to know that I'm not smart enough to know what's going on. It's, you know, the, the whole Republican Democrat thing, it has become so unbelievably partisan and it's become so unbelievably, it's, I feel as if it's just. Well, it's, it's monetized, dude. It's, it's, it's for monetized. profit. It's, it's, it's yes. for profit. We're in yeah. for profit politics. Very and, much so. And, and yeah. it's, and it's breaking us as a people.